All right, this morning we're continuing our journey through Acts. We're coming up to the end of Acts, actually, uh, believe it or not. I know we've been in this for a long time. The last few chapters of Acts are going to go really quickly. Um, And I mentioned this last week. Uh, We're probably, my goal is to wrap up Acts um, by the end of August. And then in the fall, um, we're going to do a short series on the church, uh, just asking basic questions about the church. How did we get here today? Uh, How did the church go from being what we see in Acts, uh, in the church, the early church in Acts, to being what we see today here in Parker Ford? What's that journey been like? Um, And so we're going to do some fundamental sort of like foundation level teaching on the church And then after that, and I'm really excited about this, going into the winter, um, I think what we're going to do is we're going to take however much time the Lord would have us, and we're just going to focus on Jesus and the life of Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to look at Jesus, uh, his teachings, his parables, his miracles, um, his disciples, his family, his birth, his death, his resurrection. And so that, that series will be a whole bunch of mini-series uh, that are put together that's all about uh, Jesus. When I've been praying for Parker Ford Church and asking the Lord, where do you have us going? Um, what I've continually been drawn back to is just the invitation uh, from the Lord to focus on Jesus and to look at Jesus and to learn from Jesus. And so I'm really looking forward to that. So that just gives a little bit of context and vision for where we're headed. Um, but over the next month and a half or so, we're going to be wrapping up our series on Acts. And our series on Acts, just a reminder, has been about the question, how do we discern God's will and God's voice today in 2019? How do we discern God's will? Who here wants to know God's will for their lives? Right? Every hand should be up. Who here wants to hear the voice of the Lord? We all do. So um, as we've been journeying through Acts, we've been asking the question, how do we hear God's voice? How do we discern his will? Well, we know the starting place, and the starting place is, is this, is by meditating on this, by reading it, by feasting on it by putting it in our heart deeply that we might not sin against the Lord, that that we might know him. So the the starting place is here, but just reading the word of God is actually not enough to know his will for us today because God in his word teaches us that we're also to pray with one another. Amen? We're to be devoted to prayer. We're to be devoted to speaking in one another's lives. Every single major decision in my life that has gone well has gone well because I've had other people speak into my life and give wisdom and and instruction and direction. Have you experienced that in your life, right? This is part of God's discernment. We do it together. We hear from the Lord as we walk together. So prayer, God's word, discerning together. So I want to keep that in mind as we're going through uh, the chapter this morning. It's not the whole chapter 21, but it's most of it. This is Paul's journey from uh, right when he was with the Ephesian elders. This is at the very end of his third missionary journey, and this is his journey to Jerusalem. I think that Paul sees himself um, walking in the footsteps of Christ uh, in his journey to Jerusalem. So if you know, if you're familiar with the, the gospel of Mark, 
you'll know that Mark doesn't really care about telling us much about Jesus' birth or early life. In fact, hardly anything is said. It just, bam, you start reading Mark, and right away you're in the ministry of Jesus. And so he doesn't give any context. And Mark, scholars believe Mark is the oldest of the Gospels. So it was the first of the Gospels to be written. And what Mark could not wait to talk about was Jesus journeying to Jerusalem. The entire book of Mark, from the first chapters to the end, Mark cannot wait to talk about Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem. Have you heard that phrase? Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He was determined, knowing what was lying in front of him, knowing the suffering, the crucifixion was ahead of him, the cross, he set his face. And what we're going to see here in this chapter, and what we've already started to see in chapter 20, is Paul, I think, seeing himself walking in the footsteps of Jesus, has also set his face to go to Jerusalem, even though all of these people in his life are saying, Paul, don't do it. Don't go there. If you go there, you're going to be arrested. If you go there, you're going to suffer. One other note of introduction, um, this, this morning is clearly a morning uh, that's a family morning at Parkerport Church. So think about it. I mean, we, we had our children, we had our graduates, we had all of these more announcements than we typically have. We have these fellowship opportunities coming up. This, this morning, it has been all about family, and that's going to continue in the word this morning, because typically how I preach, how how I feel convicted to preach the word is not primarily from an application standpoint. To be honest, I don't care that much whether or not you bring something from Sunday morning that you can immediately apply to your life. What I care about way more than that is that we would each leave here inspired by the greatness of God. And sometimes you don't know what to do with it, and that's completely appropriate. Sometimes the only application is to be in awe of God, and that is the greatest application. So typically when I'm preaching, my desire is to stir awe and wonder at God. This morning, what I sense from the Lord is actually in the midst of this family, uh, family morning, we find ourselves as a church at a, at a point where I think the word has a very practical, immediately applicable word for us. So this, is, this will be from a slightly different perspective than I typically teach with. So I'm going to move quickly through the scripture so that I can get to that. Does that make sense? And if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. You can be a part of the family. When I, I was a missionary kid in the uh, Philippines as a kid, and uh, all Filipino churches love this song. They sing it every week. It's uh, Welcome to the Family. Have you heard that? We're glad that you have come to share your lives with us. They sing it every single Sunday. And when I was there for the first time in 15 years this past spring, I visited a Filipino church, and they started singing it. I was like, oh, they still do it. So they sing, welcome to the family. So if you're visiting with us, welcome to the family. We're glad that you're here. All right, Acts 21, 1 to 26. This is the map of Paul's third missionary journey. He has traveled from Antioch with Silas and Timothy, gone through Asia Minor. He spent over two years in Ephesus. After the riot in Ephesus, he moved up into Macedonia um, and down into Corinth. This uh, part of the journey is when he wrote uh, the book of Romans as well as 2 Corinthians. He's gathered the offering from all of these churches to take back to the Jerusalem church. So there's, all, uh, there's, there's leaders from all of these churches that are traveling with him now. Last week we were here. He landed in this town 
where he met with the Ephesians elders, and now this week he is going down here, and we will end with him in Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested. Spoiler alert. Next week. Acts 21. Father, as we engage your word this morning, we just again invite your spirit to teach us. We want to glorify you and honor you even as we seek uh, some practical application this morning. We pray this in your precious name. Acts 21 from the ESV, it says, And when we had parted, so Luke is with them, that's the we passages. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. If you are a Bible uh, reader, you know that Tyre plays uh, a massive part in Scripture um, all th- uh, throughout much of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Jesus spent some time there. For the ship was to unload its cargo. Verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, so there's a church there. They seek out the disciples. They stayed there for a week. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. You're going to be arrested. You're going to suffer. But they move on. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, listen to this. This is really cool. Talk about family. They all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. So this whole church, men, women, children, old and young, they accompany the group traveling with Paul, They all walk out of the city together, and when they come to the beach, they knelt down and prayed together. Isn't that beautiful? They spend family service together. They kneeled down on the beach and prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, so they get on a boat and they go down the coast, we arrived at Ptolemais, And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So there's another church there. They stay with them for a day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Does everybody remember Philip? Philip was one of the first seven deacons that was commissioned. We we had a couple of sermons about him uh, months ago when we were in early Acts. And uh, Philip was one of the first seven uh, deacons that were commissioned by the church to care for the church. And then after Stephen was stoned to death with Paul's approval, there was a dispersion uh, of the church. And Philip took the gospel where? Do you remember where he took it? He took it to the Ethiopian eunuch. But what town did he go to? The hated enemies of the Jewish people. Samaria. Took it to the Samaritans. So Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans. This is the first intentional movement of the gospel outside of strictly Jewish people. And now it's taken to the Samaritans. So this is 15-something-odd years later. Paul probably went to Jerusalem uh, in this trip in 56 AD. So this is 20-something years since the uh, crucifixion and resurrection. This is... Uh, a, a while after Philip had gone to Samaria, we're not sure how long, but now Philip is leading a church in Caesarea. He had, verse 9, four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's a bad translation. So ESV is, is 
is a good translation, but often when women are put in places of leadership in the ESV, it changes the language a little bit um, because it comes from the complementarian uh, viewpoint. So what, the, what it actually says is he had four unmarried daughters who were prophets. So it's not just that he had four daughters who happened to prophesy in this one situation. The, the Greek is that he had four daughters who continually prophesied under that gifting. Does that make sense? That slight nuance? All right. So Philip has four daughters who are called prophetesses. While we were staying for many days, so we don't know how long they stayed in this church, but this whole group with Paul, there's probably 20 people traveling with Paul. They all stay at Philip's house, and his daughters come and prophesy and serve there. While they were staying, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. Anybody remember Agabus? He's also been in Acts earlier. Anybody remember where Agabus was? Man, you guys. The, the pop quizzes are failing, falling short today. Agabus, really cool name, right? Agabus was the prophet who went with Barnabas and Paul from Jerusalem to Antioch. And in, in chapter 11, when Paul and Barnabas, before they're commissioned for their first missionary journey, when Paul and Barnabas are serving in Antioch, which was the first Gentile church, it says that a prophet named Agabus came up and he prophesied that there would be an entire empire-wide famine and that the famine would particularly cause suffering in the Jerusalem church. So again, pop quiz, do you remember what they decided to do in light of this prophecy from Agabus? They decided to send an offering to Jerusalem. So the Antioch church, chapter 11, collected an offering and they, everyone gave generously and they sent it with Paul and Barnabas down to the Jerusalem church to bless the Jerusalem church. Now, at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, as he's going from church to church to gather an offering to take to the church in Jerusalem, where did he get that idea? He got that idea from already having done it. In chapter 11, from Agabus, I think this is just cool, poetic, full-circle imagery by Luke. Now, he's in Caesarea, his last stop before going to Jerusalem, and who does he come across? Agabus. Agabus, as he's carrying this offering. So Agabus came down from Judea, which is actually up from Judea, if you're thinking north-south. And coming to us, all right, use your imaginations with me, Okay. Use your imaginations with me to picture this. And coming to us, this is Agabus, he takes Paul's belt. I dare one of you to come up here and try to take my belt off. He, he walks up to Paul, he takes his belt off, he binds his own hands and feet. What does that look like? Like a calf, right? Have you ever seen a calf or a lamb tied hand and feet and its feet are sticking up? Agabus, taking Paul's belt off of him, binds his own feet and hands, and he's sticking up, laying on the ground. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It's one of those moments where you stop whatever you're doing, and you're like, what is going on? Listen to that. When we heard this, the whole group of people... We and the people there urged him, that's Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
All right, church, I want to invite you to reflect on that for one moment. Take a moment in the quietness of your heart, and I would invite you to align yourself with the Lord in such a way that you would say, that we would say, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but to die for the sake of Jesus Christ. So go ahead and take a moment and confess that to the Lord. And if you're not able, then ask the Lord why. Reveal why I'm not able to even say that. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let's all read that together. Let the will of the Lord be done. Let's say it together. Here we go. One, two, three. Let the will of the Lord be done. Church, this is the most powerful posture that the believer can have in Christ. These should remind you of other people who have said similar things in scripture. Who else said this? Jesus, where? In the garden. Father, if it be possible, if it be possible, let this cup, the cup of suffering, pass from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' prayer, when the disciples said, teach us to pray, he said, okay, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you shall bear a child. And her response, let it be done to me according to the will of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the most authoritative, powerful posture that we can take in Christ. That when his word comes to us, whatever hard challenge, whatever hard call, however uncomfortable it makes us, that we stand before him and say, let the will of the Lord be done. Amen? Verse 15, after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So he is described in exactly the same way that Barnabas was. An early disciple from Cyprus could be related. We don't know, but this could be a cousin or a relative of Barnabas. And they all are lodging with him. So this is a big house. This is, first century homes usually couldn't accommodate that many people. But there's all of this group that are staying in this one home. Verse 17 When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. That's the church. The church received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. This is James, the brother, the younger brother, half-brother of Jesus, son of Mary. This is the same James who wrote the epistle, James. This is the James who, in Acts 15, um, made the decision in the Jerusalem council. This is James who's called the pillar of the church. This is James who has authority, um, primary authority in the church at Jerusalem. So they go to meet with James and all the elders. So all the other elders were present. Peter may have been there. John may have been there. Uh, we're not sure. But the elders of the church of Jerusalem are present meeting with Paul. Verse 19, after greeting them, 
he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs, which is sort of true. Paul was teaching the Gentiles that they didn't need to be circumcised. He wasn't telling them to forsake the, the law. He was telling them to follow Jesus and thus fulfill the law. Because the law of Christ is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In keeping this, you fulfill the purpose behind every other commandment in the law, as Jesus taught. So Paul, going from church to church, he's often telling Gentiles, no, you don't have to eat kosher. No, you don't have to be circumcised. Yes, you must be committed to following the Lord with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. Does that make sense? Now, the Jews, many of the Jews are still, who are Christians are still zealous. And we've talked about this over and over again in our journey through Acts. There's a camp, there's a party within these early Christians who are Jewish believers who do think that the Christians have to follow the complete law, including the Gentiles. So if they want to be Christ followers, they have to become also culturally um, and ceremonially Jewish. And Paul has warred against this. He has fought against this. Read, read Galatians. We took time to look at Galatians. This is where Paul says there's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer male or female. There's one new person in Christ. So they're bringing this up again. Paul, you're in a sticky situation because this is what people think that you've been teaching. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear, that's the Jews who are zealous for the law, that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. So they come up with a plan. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have told, been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law, which again is kind of true. When Paul is with Jews, he lives as a Jew. He says, when I was among the Gentiles, I lived as a Gentiles. When I was with the weak, I was weak. That by identifying with whomever, I may win some to Christ. You remember? Remember this tension that Paul lives in? Verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent them a letter, this is from Acts 15 that they're referencing, with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And then we'll read this next week. Paul is arrested in the temple, so their plan does not work. But here they reference the letter written in Acts 15, um, which said a couple of things. It said, um, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. We would ask that they abstain from food, sacrifice to idols. We would ask that they not drink or eat the blood of the animals, because in Le Levitical law, it says that the life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. This is one of the most important commandments in Leviticus. And so don't eat or drink the blood of the animal, and um, do not sleep around. Do not be sexually promiscuous, but uphold the, um, the commandments of the Lord when it comes to human sexuality. And so these were the, the three things that they said to the Gentile churches. Now, 
what Paul understands that those in Jerusalem could not possibly understand, those who had not worked among the Gentiles, what he understands that they don't understand is this. It's not that simple. It's not actually that simple. In many cases, it's actually impossible for the Gentiles to abstain from food sacrifice to idols. Because if you lived in a pagan city with a prominent temple, then every single animal that came through the butcher system went through the temple system as part of that butcher system. And so every single animal that came through was part of the temple idol practice. And so Paul understands it's much more complicated. Also, what happens if you're invited over to a Gentile home? What if you're trying to bring, win someone to Christ and they invite you into their home and they don't eat kosher? Are we to say, I'm sorry, I cannot accept your hospitality because you eat differently than I've been commanded? So Paul wrestles with this and he wrestles with it in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 and in Romans 14 and 15. We're going to look at Romans 14. All right, take a moment, quick exercise. Earlier I said, look around you. When I started the service, I said, look around you. You see a room full of people that are different than you. I want to call that back. Look around you. Here is a room full of people from different places, from different traditions, from different backgrounds, with different understandings, each of whom are committed to pursuing Christ. Or, I'm presuming, desire to learn more about that. You're here. Our differences in this church, I know the body well, having spent time with you. Within this room sit people who view life very differently. Politically, sometimes spiritually, how to approach the text. We live in a culture, this is where I'm going to get very practical and applicable for our body. We live in a culture that in every way is pulling people to fundamentalism on either extreme. Think about this politically for half a second, and you know this is true. We live in a culture where every talking head and every screaming voice is telling you to entrench yourself further and further in the extreme and to not tolerate or be in fellowship with those who view things differently than you. We have an incredible blessing at this church because we have people who are all across that spectrum in fellowship together here at this church, all pursuing Christ. The political cycle is about to pick up steam again. The debates have started and it is going to get so nasty. And once again, Satan is going to use this as an opportunity to sow dissension and disagreement and break down relationships in churches. Because guess what? We have Republicans and Democrats in this same room. <gasps> it's, we do. So are we going to pursue Christ with genuine understanding towards one another, knowing that we don't view things the same way? Or are we going to draw a circle around our little plot and say, you're either in or you're out? 
This is what Paul was wrestling with in every single church. As Jews and Gentiles looked at one another and everything in their flesh wanted to say, you view things so differently than me. I can't fellowship with you. And Paul lays his life down over and over and over again to say, God has created one new person in Christ. So no matter what your background is or how you view things politically or what your experience is, as you pursue Christ and your brother or sister pursues Christ, God is bringing you together that you might learn from them and they might learn from you. And yes, there's going to be tension and fighting and arguing and disagreement, but you're both pursuing Christ. And in Jesus' name, there is one body. Not two. There is one body. Can I get a hallelujah, an amen, a yes? There is one body. Romans 14. Paul says, writing about this issue, people having differences of opinion. This is the Gentile church in the heart of paganism, in the heart of Rome. People hating one another based on their differences of opinion, being brought together by Christ and struggling through the tension of having different views and different experiences. And this is what Paul says to them. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome. Don't shame. Welcome. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables, notice who he calls weak. He calls weak the one who's actually following the Levitical law here. While the weak person eats only vegetables, verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So the one who does have freedom, they are not allowed to despise the one who doesn't. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains, if you abstain because your conscience isn't clean, you are not to pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? None of you serve me. <laughs> you serve God. And as I serve you, what I'm actually, who I'm actually seeking to serve is the Lord. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better, so the Jews thinking that the Sabbath is better than Sunday, but others, Jesus was resurrected on the Sunday, they think that's the day for worship. While another esteems all days alike, because guess what? The temple is no longer a building we go to. The temple is the body of Christ, the spirit of God dwelling within us. So if the holiness of the day is based on when you go to the temple, what happens when the temple becomes you 365 days a year? Every day is sacred. Every day is anointed to be present with Jesus. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So if you think Sunday or Saturday is special, God bless you. Make it sacred and special. The one who eats... The one who eats with freedom, even food that's been sacrificed to idols, let them eat it. They honor the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, those who don't feel like they can do that, they abstain in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see what he's doing? 
He's drawing both extremes in which direction? Towards one another. You have freedom? Praise God. Bless the one who doesn't. You don't have freedom? Don't you dare judge those who do. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you who despise your brother, for he, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We're going to stand before the Lord and answer to him. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. Nothing is unclean in itself. He quotes, in this same discussion in 1 Corinthians, he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Verse, uh, Psalm 24. But it is unclean, but it is unclean for anyone whose conscience says it's unclean. So if you're engaging in an activity that your conscience says don't do that, you should not do that. If your conscience says don't drink, even though Jesus turned water into wine, you should not drink. If your conscience is not clean. But you are also not allowed to judge the one who does have freedom. They belong to him, God. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy. By what you eat, do not destroy. For one whom Christ died, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not, it's not a matter of eating or drinking, but it's not a matter of that. What is the kingdom a matter of? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Everybody say righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Whoever thus serves Christ with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Can we receive that as an invitation from the Lord this morning? Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. For the kingdom of God, just to emphasize this, is, emphasize this, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. All right, and this is where it gets practical and applicable for our body. All right, the worship planning team put together uh, four experiences for us this summer to engage together as a church. A music playlist, a uh, worship play playlist, a book to read, letters uh, to the church, um, a painting by Elena, to, to um, meditate on, and the fourth was a prayer labyrinth, um, to walk the ground and to pray to Jesus. Um, this is not a statement of judgment at all. This is a statement of bearing with one another. This, that 
was introduced to the body totally innocently with a desire that we would pray outside walking together. Some have been uncomfortable with that within our body, uh, with the prayer labyrinth. So we want to bear with you as well. If you've been uncomfortable with the prayer labyrinth being on, on our um, property, our, our purpose was to build the body, not to divide it. And so in that sense, uh, we apologize in any offense that that caused or any discomfort in your conscience. If you've had trouble with the prayer labyrinth, I would invite you to wrestle through what Paul is teaching here. You're not to judge those who have freedom to do it. Because one person can walk out there and walk that maze, the labyrinth, and pray to Jesus and commune with the Spirit of God in freedom. While another might not be able to. So if you can with freedom, you're not to judge those who can't. Does that make sense? We bear with one another. We bear with one another. Now, here's what we are going to invite you for the remainder of the summer months. Did I skip over it? I did. For the remainder of the summer months, in place of the heart that was behind the labyrinth, this was the desire behind the labyrinth, we would like to challenge each person in Parker Ford Church to prayer walk or drive, if you are physically unable, our neighborhood here, Coventry Glen, a minimum of twice per month. Walk through this neighborhood and pray for our neighbors. Pray that our neighbors would come to know Jesus. Pray for their children. Pray for their marriages. Pray for their freedom from addiction. There are alcoholics and drug addicts and porn addicts. And just, just like all of us have struggled with, they're struggling. Pray for them. Pray for their jobs. Pray for their families. Pray for their finances. Pray for their friendships with one another. Pray for their safety. Be outside walking on God's earth, the earth is the Lord in the fullness thereof, and commune with the Spirit of God in intercession on behalf of those who do not know Jesus. Can we do that together? With a clear conscience, can we pursue our neighbors together, praying that they might know the love of Jesus? Can we do that together? If your conscience is clear with the prayer labyrinth, it's still out there, and you can do that. But the call of the church this summer, is go pray for our neighbors that they might know Jesus. Ron, you can come back up. We're going to end our service. I know I went heavy and I went hard this morning. But this is the reality of where we find ourselves. This one issue could be a thousand issues. There are not a single one of us view everything the same way. I don't even view the same things the same way as myself from when I wake up to when I end the day, right? Because I learn and I change and I grow. Sometimes I make mistakes. So let us bear with one another just like we have to bear with ourselves. And love and let us pursue peace and the mutual upbuilding of the church. I do not mean this word. Please do not receive this. I do not mean this word as, uh, from an angry standpoint. I want to share this because I am burdened for you, church. And I see that this is a way that the enemy is seeking a foothold in our midst that he might divide us. 
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that nothing we're facing, the church hasn't faced a thousand times through a thousand generations. (laughs) Over the last 2,000 plus years, over and over again, the enemy has sought to divide the church over secondary, third, fourth issues while you have sought to unify your church around your son. So in this room and in our body, whether or not individuals are here, we have a church body, praise God, who is committed to being a people following Christ, PFC, pursuing Jesus. And so even though we have disagreements politically, even though we have disagreements about other things, (laughs) even theological differences, we all agree on this, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and there is none other. And so as we seek you as a body, we wrestle through these things. I stay awake at night crying out on behalf of our church, shedding tears on behalf of her oneness and unity that we might not be divided. Protect us and lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to stand and we're going to do spiritual warfare by singing because some battles are only won through singing. So people of God, lift your voice to the Lord and worship to him as we close our service. Mm